I crushed my comedian wafer this morning, and I did it um, intentionally. Every time we take communion, I have this habit of um, breaking the bread because Jesus said, my body is broken for you. But this morning was different um, because of what we're looking at this morning, the passage in, in Luke. I'm going to ask you to turn there in a minute, but I took it and, and I pushed it as hard as I could in the palm of my hand and, and just pulverized it because Jesus was pulverized. Scripture actually describes that he was slaughtered. It's a very visceral term, and it's not one that the church talks about often, but it's a a gut-wrenching reality, and it actually makes me queasy. And so I, I try to understand why did the torture have to be so severe? I I understand the death because I understand the sacrificial system and I get it, but I'm left asking, why so horrific? Wouldn't one lash have been enough? Um, Luke 24 tells this amazing story of what it was like And the remarkable thing is, it's from Jesus himself. He tells the story after the resurrection about what it was like and why he did it. And so rather than going into Romans for the next couple weeks leading into Easter, um, we're actually going to take Luke 24 and this story and we're going to break it apart like we do Romans in the same way, and it'll lead us right into Easter. So we have a greater appreciation for what actually happened. So prepare yourself for the next three weeks to be in Luke 24. Uh, I'm gonna ask you to turn now, if you would there, and you'll see why in just a minute. So go to Luke chapter 24. If you don't have a Bible, we have free Bibles in the back. I'd love for you to pick one up if you don't own a Bible. You can get a copy of God's Word from that brown table back there when you leave this morning if you want. Take it with you. Maybe you have a hard copy, it's on your phone perhaps, or maybe another electronic device, or you can follow along on the screen. I want to pray with you before we step into it. Before we do that, um, just a reminder for you, this coming weekend, I'm sorry, this two weeks from today is Easter Sunday, right? And so we won't have a Saturday night service, we'll have all three services on Sunday morning. And what Debbie likes to remind us from the children's ministry standpoint is that that's a huge opportunity for people who call New Hope their church to serve. And she has 60 positions to fill for that weekend in order for individuals to serve in the children's ministry area. Well, the great news is, you should really celebrate this, 40 of the 60 positions have already been filled. How cool is that, right? But that means there's 20 more to fill. And so maybe you're looking for a way to plug in at New Hope, and maybe you're looking for a way to serve. Well, the reason I tell you two weeks in advance is we take children's safety really seriously here, and it requires a little bit of time to do the child background checks for individuals who serve. So if you're interested in that, uh, let Debbie know, and she'll sign you up, and they'll do the background check, and they'll get you signed up, and maybe you could serve in an earlier service and attend a later one or attend an earlier one and serve in a later one. Just consider that, would you? Let's step into prayer. We'll pray about what we're about to study and and about what I just shared with you. Lord God, you know the needs of this church, and you are always faithful to meet the needs. I pray for Debbie and the children's ministry that you would um, bring forth individuals who have a heart for serving in that way on Easter Sunday. I think of all the hundreds and hundreds of people who will stream through the doors that don't typically go to church, 
and we anticipate what you're going to be doing in their lives. We, we want to serve them well, but we most of all want to serve you. So I, I pray, Father, for that need to be met. I, I pray for ourselves right now as we open up our copy of God's Word, that you would give us eyes to see, and as painful as it is, Father, ears to hear the, the very graphic ways in which you put it all on the line for us. And your word doesn't hold anything back. You, you give us clarity. So help us not to hold back. And where you push and you need to move us to respond, cause us to be responsive. I pray for the work of the Holy Spirit to be so active here right now that you're not just our teacher, but you stimulate us to action. We pray for that in Jesus' name, amen. All four of the Gospels omit a very specific incident. All four of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, omit the resurrection from inside the tomb. Nobody was there to see it. There was only one, and he tells us the story in Luke 24, and that one is Jesus. But everybody else is a bystander. Everybody else is outside. They don't know what's going on inside the tomb. They don't know the why. So the actual resurrection is not recorded. You can't find it. Yet the effects of it are recorded. We're told of this massive earthquake that rocked the Middle East. It split stones in half. It was so violent that it trembled buildings. Graves were opened up and... An angel came and descended and sat on one of the stones. There were multiple angels there, and one of the other effects is that the soldiers of Rome fainted. They couldn't take in what they were seeing. So it was a traumatic event. It caused people to try and rectify in their minds, what's going on? That it happened is the reason that we're here this morning, amen? The very reason you lift the cup. The very reason you can celebrate is that it happened. How it happened. That can only be explained by the power of God, and only God himself can explain that. And to latch onto the events of the resurrection, you actually need to latch onto the emotional scene taking place. And the way we can do that is by looking at what was recorded for us by other humans. Here's an example for you. Mark 16, 8 says this. They went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had gripped them, and they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. Maybe you've already pulled the notes out of your bulletin this morning. You'll find there's only three Greek words in there, and all three of them are right here in the beginning, and I want you to see them. They're on the screen for you. Tromos, ecstasis, and phobeo. You might recognize them because our English words actually come from those three Greek words. Tromos, that's trauma. Ecstasis, that's ecstasy. Phobeo, that's phobia. Well, if you've got a fear of heights, if you've got a fear of spiders, if you've got a fear of water, you know phobeo. Well, let's put the definitions with it. What is actually being described here? Tromos, the trauma, a quaking, actually trembling. There's a physical reaction going on. Ecstasis, a displacement of the mind. They can't make sense of what they're seeing. And so phobeo, it drives them to fright to the degree that they're extremely terrified. 
What does it cause these other humans to do? This is exactly how you would expect humans to react when they encounter the power of God. It's raw and it's visceral and there's this surge of adrenaline that causes them to want to run. So physically, they run, but they can't outrun their mind. They can't unsee what they've seen And so something is haunting them. This gut-wrenching perplexity is pursuing them no matter how fast they run. The reality of what they've just encountered doesn't connect with normality. And that happens in our world today. We can associate thoughts with this. Regularly at accident scenes, police officers will tell you, these are the kind of reactions humans have when they go into shock. They see things that overwhelm them. They experience a visceral, physical reaction. There begins a shaking, a displacement of the mind, and that's what shock is. There's an overwhelming load on the sensory perception. That's what's going on for them. What they've seen is too powerful. How do you rationalize what you cannot visually explain? And therein lies the challenge of Easter. This is the reason we're not diving into Romans this week or next week, but rather the challenge of Easter is what you find among your friends, your social circle. I'm just going to assume you're two weeks before Easter, you're in church, you're probably a church person. But you've got friends who might show up on Easter weekend because Americans do that. They go to church on Easter and Christmas. You've got friends who might be looking at this story and have the same reaction as these two individuals in Luke chapter 24 this morning. See, the challenge of Easter is this. The power of God has produced the greatest event in the history of the world, and the experience stretches at the seams of normality. The mind cannot make sense, and we struggle to rationalize it. And in recognizing that, we see ourselves and we see our friends who are stretched and asked to believe in something that they have never seen before. That's why Jesus said, blessed are those who believe without having seen, when he speaks of you, because you've never laid eyes on the actual resurrection. You weren't inside the tomb. You believe without having seen. So at New Hope, we're going to walk in this very big picture with the one who was actually there, and he's going to explain it to us, the how and the why. There's a few post-resurrection reports that rise to the surface. One of them is highly detailed. Dr. Luke did a lot of research, and he wrote down the book of Luke. And we've looked at it before at New Hope, but we've never looked at it in the kind of detail that we're going to look at it now. So in each of the three weeks, here's what we're going to do. We're going to ask this question today. Why the suffering? Why did he have to be crushed? Next week, why the resurrection? Why did he have to be resurrected in the third week, Easter morning? What does it actually look like to walk in that big picture? Let's dive into the story. Let's pick it up in verse 13 of chapter 24. Luke chapter 24, 13 reads this way. And behold, two of them were going that very day to a village named Emmaus, which was about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all the things which had taken place. While they were talking and discussing, Jesus himself approached and began traveling with them, verse 16, but their eyes were prevented from recognizing him. I'll circle back around to that last part in verse 16, why I think he actually did that. Why did he stop them from recognizing him? But pay attention to verse 13, it says that very day. That means the same day that the tomb is opened up. 
The exact, that's Easter Sunday, it's resurrection day, the same day the tomb is discovered empty. These guys are headed out. Why would they leave Jerusalem in the midst of what should be a huge celebration? And they're headed home, they're going to Emmaus. Well, because all their hopes, everything that they had banked on with Jesus was crushed. As the story develops, you see that they don't believe in the resurrection. Everything is obliterated. So in verse 14, it says they're talking with each other about all these things. They're stunned. They're still in shock. If you're old enough this morning, if you're more than 19 years old, you may remember the events of 9-11. It's been 18 years, right? 18 years. Do you remember the sense of confusion? I do. Uh, the sadness the confusion mixed with the sadness, they're both sad and confused. There's incomprehension about what they have seen and they can't make sense of it. And that's exactly what's going on here. You might associate 9-11 that way. They can't figure it out. Jesus, he's been executed? He was tortured? How could that be like a common criminal? And the story takes such a turn in verse 15 when it says Jesus approached them and began talking with them. Remember, this is an era of walking. It's not uncommon for individuals to be walking along a road and other individuals to join them in their journey and jump into the conversation. And I'm struck by this amazing condescension of God in this moment. It's Resurrection Sunday. <laughs> And Jesus shows up on a dirt road, and he's going to walk with these two for a couple hours. What's going on? Well, they're like you, and God knows they're hurt. He knows there's a wound, and they've been crushed, and he's going to walk alongside them to give clarity for the benefit of us today, these ones who are sad and confused. They live in the same world that you do. They're not superheroes just because they're in the Bible. They live the same way we do. They're dealing with sadness and confusion. And they've not seen the actual resurrection. And they're not sure what to believe. Verse 17, Jesus responds. And he said to them, what are these words that you are exchanging with one another as you are walking? And they stood still, looking sad. So walk, 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 walk. And a dead stop. What? How, how could you not know? How? They're dumbfounded. They're stunned. Jesus is the only thing people are talking about. He's on everyone's mind. And now this new twist that his body is missing and the rumors are racing around the Capitol all throughout all the metro area that there's been a resurrection but nobody believes it. And, and Rome has paid its soldiers, and there's no official statement by Rome, but it looks like maybe the followers stole his body. We, we think that's what happened. Well, then Cleopas jumps in with a response. Verse 18, one of them named Cleopas answered and said to him, are you the only one visiting Jerusalem and unaware of the things which have happened here in these days? And he said to them, what things? Don't ever tell me God doesn't have a sense of humor. All right, I'll take you to that verse every time. Who's the most aware of these things? It's going to be Jesus. 
But God draws them out and he's finished the verse out with me in verse 18 and 19. And they said to him, the things about Jesus the Nazarene who was a prophet, mighty indeed and word in the sight of God and all the people and how the chief priest and our rulers, they delivered him to the sentence of death and crucified him. Seriously? How can you not know? Is your Twitter feed messed up? What's going on here? Are you not reading the headlines? How can you not know these things? And so they conclude that Jesus is just another tourist who stepped into town for the Passover. Somehow he's missed out on the details. And I find his statement in verse 19 to be really compelling to me. He said to them what things, and not just because it's funny, it's like God saying, go ahead, tell me about God. But for this reason, if you've ever had a great teacher in your life, and Jesus is the greatest, if you've ever had a great teacher in your life, they'll do exactly what Jesus has just done here. He's allowing them to reveal their heart, to speak to what they understand has happened. So watch their response. Next verse, verse 21. Here's the revelation. We were hoping that it was he who was going to redeem Israel. Indeed, besides all this, it is the third day since these things happened, and there it is. That explains their sadness. There's this amazing contrast going on here. We were hoping, but our hopes have been crushed. We don't have hope anymore. We were hoping that he was the solution, and they're hoping for something that God has already accomplished God has already done it. They just don't know it yet. This is true for you today. If you're new to church, you need to know this. If you're hoping for a change in your life, you don't have to hope as though it's not available. It's now. The price has already been paid. Jesus is just waiting. These individuals just don't know it yet. So they use, interestingly, the word redeem. We were hoping that he would be the one to redeem. We use the word in the English language today. You redeem coupons when you go to the store. We know that that means there has to be a price paid. Something has to be exchanged to redeem a coupon. Why did they use the word redeem if they didn't know there wasn't going to be a price to be paid? They're redeeming something. They fail to grasp the price of the redemption. And this is the confirmation of their unbelief. Verse 21, it's the third day. He hasn't shown up yet. That's code for we don't believe what other people have told us. Why the third day? Well, because of what Jesus had said. As Jonah was in the belly of the whale three days and three nights, so shall the Son of Man be in the heart of the earth. The Son of Man must be delivered over and be executed, but will rise again. They, they heard all those things, but they don't put the pieces together. So this is the confirmation of the unbelief. And they're saying... It's late. It's the afternoon. It's already the third day. We're going home. It's over. Watch the next verse, 22. But also some women among us amazed us when they were at the tomb early in the morning and did not find his body. They came saying that they had also seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just exactly as the women also said. But him they did not see. 
So they're revealing their heart here, and it's profound, and it's weighty, and it's what your coworkers face. It may be a family member, your friends. I've never seen it. Nobody's getting resurrected from the dead these days. How can I believe? You believe that? See, this is the core issue, verse 24, him they did not see. Now, the women who have been to the tomb that morning, they had an Isaiah 6 experience. You know what I'm talking about there, church? Isaiah 6, Isaiah recorded, I saw the Lord high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple, and the walls and the threshold of the temple shook. And I said, woe to me, for I am undone. That was a fear. That was a trembling. That was a shaking. These women have had that Isaiah 6 experience. They experienced the same thing. They collapsed in on themselves and ran. And these individuals on the road are pressing that issue. They didn't find him there. He wasn't there. The empty tomb is not enough for them. So we're going to develop that thought a little bit more next week when we talk about why did he have to be resurrected. Verse 25 is Jesus' response. And he said to them, O foolish men and slow of heart to believe. And we're talking about faith here. Slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and to enter into his glory? In the category of things I never want to hear God say to me, it's going to be that. You foolish man. You're slow of heart to believe, especially with the intonation of what Jesus is saying here when you look at the Greek word that's associated with it. Foolish and slow of heart is saying this to me, you're responsible. You had enough information and you're slow to believe all that God has said is real. Why? Because they've got this visceral reaction. You see, God believes that there's enough information in the Old Testament. That's all they had. New Testament hadn't been written yet. God believes there's enough information in the Old Testament that they should have been able to put the pieces together. So they're reacting with emotion rather than believing what God has revealed. How do I know that? Because of the word that Jesus used when he says foolish. The word is anotes. And it actually means unintelligent. And I don't mean that in an insulting way. Jesus didn't mean it that way. Unintelligent means you're reacting based on your gut feelings, not on information. What is faith, church? Faith is believing what God has revealed. God said he revealed everything in the Old Testament necessary for them to believe. And they're slow of mind to believe all that God has written. So they're reacting with their emotion. We didn't see it. It doesn't make sense to us. So human emotion is saying in this moment, it can't be, and God is saying, oh, yes, it can. It can be, because nothing is impossible with God, right, church? I don't often quote angels, so let me quote an angel here for you. Throw it up on the screen for you. It's Luke 137, for nothing will be impossible with God. Gabriel said that. He's talking to Mary about when she was getting pregnant as a teenager, and she'd never had sex. And she's going to have a baby? Gabriel says, nothing is impossible with God. Now back into the story, verse 27, Jesus' rebuke is really gracious. He immediately is taking them on a tour. Then beginning with Moses and with all the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. So check this. You look at the brackets on the screen and you see that I put 
Genesis to Deuteronomy in there. That's what that means when it says Moses. What did Moses write, church? Moses wrote the first five books, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Beginning with the book of Genesis, Jesus is going to teach them everything they need to know. And then he's going to take them to the major prophets and the minor prophets. So they get Isaiah, they get Daniel, they get Jeremiah, they even get Malachi. He's going to take them on a two-hour walk because it's a two-hour walk from Jerusalem to Emmaus. And in the midst of that, he's going to reveal the book of Genesis to the book of Malachi, why these things happened. Okay, who among us is going to sign up for that class, right? I'm like, put me in there. I want that. Check the reason why, though. With broken hearts, God's taking them to his word. Where do you go when your heart is broken? Where do you go when you've been crushed? God's taking them to his word because they didn't believe the things that God had said. And the key word there is all. If you've got your own Bible open, you might want to circle the word all. See, it's not that they don't believe the Bible. They just don't believe all of it. They don't believe the things that make no sense to them, not because they've never read It's not because they never went to church. They have selective learning. I can't make sense of this. I'm told that today in Jewish synagogues around the world, they refuse to read Isaiah chapter 53. Isaiah 52 makes sense. Isaiah 54 makes sense. Isaiah 53, it talks about the torture of the Messiah, and they can't put the pieces together. It makes no sense. So They'd rather just not address it. And I'm not told specifically which one he addressed here, but I bet I can speculate pretty well. Look at the question that Jesus asked, verse 26. Was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer? And we're told that he takes them all the way back to the book of Genesis. Well, what's in Genesis? Genesis chapter 3, the betrayal of man as they reject God. What does God say in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15? Look with me up on the screen. You remember this from January, I bet. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head and you shall bruise him on the heel. Who's there? Adam, Eve, Satan. And God is saying as a result of the betrayal, Adam and Eve, a rescuer is going to come in the future. But Satan, you're going to bruise him on the heel. He's going to crush you, Satan. But you're going to bruise him on the heel. And therein is the first prophecy of why Jesus had to be tortured. So beginning with Moses, all the way back to Genesis, God says there's a rescue coming. And when I hit verse 26 in this story, it is absolutely devastating to me. Because Jesus says in verse 26, was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer? And I have to ask Why, though? Why did it have to be so horrific to the degree that he had to be tortured? And I'm left asking this question. How horrific are our sins that it required that? Charles Simeon said it this way in 1827. Inexpressibly dreadful is the guilt which requires God's only son to compensate for it. If I'm going to bring it forward in 2019, I'm going to say it this way. Like, how sick are we 
How messed up is humanity that this is what it requires, that this sacrifice is demanded. And he said, it has, I have to experience the suffering. So we step into this realm where time and eternity merge together. There's a beautiful verse in Hebrews chapter 9. Look with me up on the screen at this in verse 26. Now once at the consummation of the ages, there's time. Time's hanging out there. He has been manifested. There's eternity. He was in eternity. He's now in time. Time and eternity merge together. Once at the consummation of the ages, he's been manifested. Why? To put away sin. How? By the sacrifice. And the very idea of God being sacrificed is so repulsive that millions of people have rejected the claims of Christ. It's a stumbling block to them. So that means for you and I this morning, the atonement issue that we're talking about here, it has to be seen in the light of God's perspective, not Mark's perspective, not your perspective, because we have a visceral reaction. We go, ugh, that is so ugly. And it's not a negotiated price that's paid. God says, I demand this. This is the way it's going to be. So according to God's law, sacrifice is demanded. Hebrews 9.22, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. Now, maybe among us, there's individuals who grew up in church. Maybe your earliest memories are going to church with your parents, and you're thinking right now, I know this. I understand this. I get this, Mark. But why the torture? That's my reaction. Why the torture? Why did Jesus have to suffer? And by that, in that statement, most people mean physical Well, Jesus did suffer physically, severely, and you're going to see it in just a moment. Can I remind you that he suffered severely through the trials, through the torture, through the crucifixion, and the suffering was prophesied that it's going to happen. In other words, God told man to write it down. This is the way it's going to be. So we find this in Isaiah 52. His appearance was marred more than any man, and his form more than the sons of men, written 800 years before it happened, and indeed, it's actually what happened to him. Dr. Arnold Fruchtenbaum, from a very Jewish, very Christian perspective, wrote this particular detail about the crucifixion. Look with me at this quote. His body was so badly disfigured that he no longer resembled a man. In the sufferings of Jesus, this would have happened at his scourging. The 40 lashes were given with a multi-strand whip, each strand having a nail or a piece of glass attached to it. These literally lifted the flesh off the bone. If you read Arnold's writings and you read any of the medical accounts that were associated with what happened to Jesus, I won't get too graphic with you this morning, but just know this, the cat of nine tails, it wasn't done at a distance when you think of a slave being whipped in the 1800s in the United States. It wasn't like that where somebody stood 20 yards away and cracked a whip. It was up close and personal, and the the talons of a whip were very long. And not only were they embedded with glass and with steel, when they hit the flesh, they wrapped around the back and came to the ribcage on the front, and they were meant to peel the skin away. Man invented that. The Romans came up with that because they wanted the most gruesome way anyone could possibly die to be inflicted through crucifixion. 
That's not the only suffering that he endured. His suffering was emotional. Have you ever stopped to think about that? The emotional betrayal and the humiliation. See, Rome, when they crucified people, it wasn't just enough to inflict physical torture. They stripped them naked. So any paintings you've seen with Jesus with something on that looks like a diaper, it wasn't the case. That's what an artist did to make it palatable. So he's naked before the world, spread out on a cross. People are spitting on him. He's already had a crown of thorns put on him. He had a scepter placed in his hand and a robe placed on his back, and people bowed down to him and said, Hail, King of the Jews, mocking him. But that wasn't the ultimate emotional betrayal. It came from his, actually his friends, and how humiliating and emotionally hard would it be if you could name your 10 closest friends and every one of them ran when you're in your darkest moment? Watch this, Matthew 26, 56, all the disciples deserted him and fled. I chose Matthew because Matthew was there. See, Matthew is saying, Guilty. That's me. It was too much. I ran. I was one of the disciples, and we all ran. And so he's got the physical suffering going on. He's got the emotional suffering going on, but that's not the worst. The worst is the spiritual suffering. 2 Corinthians 5.21, God made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf. And because of the weight of that, you find Jesus on the cross. My God! And I don't think I said it loud enough. Except because he's being asphyxiated while he's on the cross, he can't draw air into his lungs. And so it's a... And then he screams... So think of the worst sin that you've ever committed. Maybe you don't want to do that in church in this moment, but just maybe let one pop in your mind. And times that by billions. <laughs> and you find the physical torture is amplified by the emotional torture, which is amplified by the guilt of our sin. And in church, we're common to say Romans 5.8, but God demonstrated his own love toward us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Where's the donut table? Give me a coffee, will you? Wait, stop. Romans 5, 8. While we were still sinners, Jesus was filleted for us. He was spit on. His flesh was ripped open. While we were still sinners, Christ Jesus died for us. And Isaiah 53 has been excerpted from many places because it is so graphic about what he actually went through. And some parts of the world can't understand it. So Isaiah 53 says this, verse 3, he's despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and like one from whom men hide their face. He was despised and we did not esteem him. Check out verse 5. He was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening of our well-being fell upon him. And by his scourging,
Isaiah writes this 800 years before it ever happened. Rome didn't exist. Crucifixion hadn't been invented. Nobody knew what scourging was. By his scourging, I'm healed? By his crushing? If that part about the chastening is confusing to you, look at the NIV, Isaiah 53, verse 5. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. NIV gets it pretty good there. I, I can make sense of that, but I can't make sense of this. How does his punishment bring me peace? So in this really broad stroke, we've got this passage in Isaiah, and he says the reason for, your, for the suffering, Jesus, is the healing that brought you peace this morning. Every one of us. So he's pierced for our transgressions. He's crushed for our iniquities. The punishment is upon him. By his wounds we are healed. And we've got to look at this through God's lens. The substitution means if he wasn't punished, new hope, we would be. Right? We would be eternally in hell if he didn't go through what he's going through here. So for prophecy to be fulfilled, Jesus had to suffer. So Mark 8.31 records this. The Son of Man must suffer many things. Jesus said that himself. And we get this really graphic detail from Isaiah. Old Testament. And if you want to look at something that looks like a doctor wrote it, I'm sorry, it's from the book of Psalms. Watch this. It's as though a pathologist wrote a post-mortem. I am poured out like water and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is turned to wax. It has melted away within me. My strength is dried up like a potsherd and my tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. You lay me in the dust of death. Dogs have surrounded me. A band of evil men has encircled me. They have pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. People stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them and cast lots for my clothing. And I'm left standing in the front row today while we're holding up the communion cup and the bread and I'm crushing that in my hand, asking a question that's unresolved for me. Why did he have to suffer so badly? Would it not just be enough to be like beheaded? I get the death part. Why is it so gruesome? Well, know this first of all. The principle of the innocent dying for the guilty, that goes all the way back to Genesis 3. Adam and Eve betray God. God says, I've got to kill one of the animals that I made. And I'll create a clothing for you. And I'll take away your shame and I'll cover up your nakedness. And so God butchers an animal and takes a hide and puts it on them and the first blood is shed and the innocent dies for the guilty and Jesus takes them all the way back to the writings of Moses, to the book of Genesis saying, was it not necessary that I would suffer this way? So I've landed on four things that I see of why he had to suffer. They're in your notes, but I'm going to put them on the screen for you. These four things that I see for why Jesus' suffering demonstrated what it did. Drink in the reality of the first one, church. 
it demonstrated the devastating consequence of sin. So every time we gossip, every time we lose our temper, every time we react in anger, every time we lust, there's a consequence, and Jesus paid that consequence. We just sang, Jesus paid it all. Here's the second one, the wrath of God. Because Scripture says he poured out his wrath on the Son. Could you endure that? What about this, the, the hatred of Satan? What does the torture reveal? It reveals how much Satan hates God. And he surfaced it right through every single one of those humans that were there that could carry out this action. And that's why I landed on the fourth one, the unchecked cruelty of unsaved humanity. We are capable of the most horrific actions. What does all this tell me about why the torture? I know this, the night of his arrest, he knew exactly what was before him because we're told that while he's in the garden, he goes into prayer mode and God the Son says to God the Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. And he's not talking about the cup that you just lifted in communion. That's the cup of the new covenant. He's talking about the cup of bitterness if it's possible, Father, let this pass from me and you're seeing fully God, fully man, exhibit fully man in that moment. I know what's about to happen to me. I know the torture. I know my skin is gonna be filleted, but there is no other way to be saved. The price had to be paid. So he says, not my will, but your will be done because justice demands it. So let's jump back to those two who are walking on the road, wrap this up. Previously, two hours earlier, they had no mental capacity in their mind for why there would be suffering. Why did he have to die that way? There's no place in their understanding for the suffering or for the death of a Messiah. Therefore, there's no place for a resurrection. Why would he have to go like that? So why could we believe in a resurrection? See, if you don't see the need of having your sin removed, why would the price even need to be paid? Therefore, there's no need for a sacrifice. There's no need for a resurrection. They can't mentally make sense of this. So Jesus is saying to them, this is not a series of events that have gone horribly wrong. God's completely in control. He had all of this planned. It was ordained by him. There's purpose in it. You know what it means for you, New Hope? It means death is not the end, right? There was reason for it. Death is not the end. And here's why I think he blinded them. I told you earlier, I, I think there was a reason why he didn't want them to see. Specifically, it's this. He wanted them to see it from the word. How do you see it today in 2019? You see it from the word. 
They're just like you. They needed to see it. They needed to understand the word of God, put the pieces together, because if he just turned on the bright lights and said, here I am, well, they'd fall down and worship him. But what did he need to do? He needed to educate them. Oh, foolish men and slow of heart to believe all that the scriptures have said. So God keeps them blind for this period of time so they can see it from the word of God exactly the way you need to see it. Here's a couple things I want you to carry out the door with you. I'm struck by God's determination to pursue us. It's God who pursues, not the other way around, right church? So he pursues Moses, he pursues Peter, he pursues these two on the road to Emmaus. And I think this is a husband and wife, by the way. I think this is a man and a woman. The reason I say that is because at the cross, at the crucifixion, it says Miriam, the wife of Cleopas. I think they're walking home, husband and wife, and they invite him into their house at the end of the journey. You'll see that next week to have a meal together. Will you come in and eat with us? I think it's a husband and wife. It doesn't matter. Here's what I understand really going on. God is the one who initiates the relationship. He's taking away all the confusion for them. And he's bringing clarity and he's speaking truth directly. I call that mercy. Here's the second thing. Jesus willingly came to be tortured. And I can't get that out of my mind. And I don't want to. So he's delivered up for the sentence that I deserve because my sin meant that I have to be tortured. So Jesus is willing to do it for me. Ultimately, you may be left here at this moment saying, I, I still can't connect all the dots. I'm, I'm asking why. Here's my simple answer for you, the simplest I can give you. 1 Peter 3.18, Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, God allows God to suffer to overcome our suffering. I'm good with that. You good with that? I, I, I have to be. God allows that. So I can't let you go out the door without bringing up Romans, right? Paul sums it up really, really well in Romans chapter 4. Just If you were here, you have to think back two years on this. Romans 4.25 part A, he was delivered over because of our transgressions. Okay, that's true. My sin killed him, but I love the second half of that verse. He who was delivered over because of our transgressions and was raised because of our justification. Yes, but that's next week, right? It's good that we would be reminded of this. Maybe you wish we were doing communion after the message because it causes you to say, I, I think I need to crush that in my hand too. So two weeks from today is Good Friday. We'll do communion there. You can crush it all you want. What visual do you need? I, I need that. I need something to remind me that he was crushed for my iniquity and for yours so that he could bring us to God. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Lord God, I thank you for every single person watching online, every person who's in this auditorium right now, every person that's been here this weekend, they are precious to you. To the degree that you died for us 
And we understand more fully now what died means. We'll probably spend eternity asking you about this and maybe you won't want to rehearse it for us. I don't know. I know it was brutal. And I know it was gory. But I know the gore was gone on Sunday, Father. So we are before you today as individuals who celebrate both the torture and the death and the resurrection. So cause us to walk more confidently this week, but also more humbly. We ask for that in the magnificent name of the King of Kings, the Lord Jesus Christ. And all God's people said, amen. Have a great week, New Hope.